Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 won't become clear to you, the early part of Ephesians 2, unless you recognize what Brother Dave read in the book of Isaiah. When a farmer, an individual, a business, a company, when they want to build a product, let's say they want to produce a mass produce or grow something, they always begin with a prototype. My machining career was in prototypes. I was part of the prototype for the Sparrow air-to-air missile for the Omar Bradley Fighting Infantry Vehicle for the lunar rover that was on the moon. I was part of it, very small part. I'm not taking any credit for any of that. Uh, Just a very small part of those things. But we made prototypes. And God is giving us an example here, his prototype of the heart of man. Uh, God's test crop was Israel the nation of Israel. Now, I'm going to give you the Old Testament in two minutes. Realize, God's crop was Israel. And it wasn't for his knowledge. He didn't do this to see what they'd be like. He knew, of course, because he's the living God, knowing everything. It was but for our example, in that uh, he used Israel to expose the heart of man, what's really in the heart of man. He could have chosen any nation, but in his divine plan, he chose the nation of Israel. And he led them through the desert. He nurtured them. He protected them. He fed them. He guided them. And overall, they rejected him throughout the whole Old Testament. Overall, they rejected him. He used them as his representatives on earth, though. This is amazing when you see them. He used them as his representatives on earth. And the reason he used them is to use Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the prophets, all the way down to be representatives of him. Some of them were very, very faithful, but as I mentioned, overwhelmingly, uh, they were not. He gave, gave them his blessing, his law, his purposes, but many of the Old Testament Jews turned that or used that into some kind of religious ceremony or used them for his own laws. Yet, they were to be God's instrument on earth. And I mentioned God was faithful to his word, his promises to the nation. He used his word to guide them and to direct them. They were to be responsible for being a light unto the nations, the Goyim nations, the Gentile nations. They did not do that the way they should have, but God used them anyway. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2 now. And in the book of Ephesians, God lets us know that he now was going to bring his nation of Israel, the Old Testament Jews, into one body, along with the Gentiles, which is the body of Christ. The letter to the Ephesians is the heartbeat of the Christian church. It is more than any other epistle, it's the encyclopedia, the Wikipedia, it's, it's the dictionary of what the body of Christ is. More than any other New Testament epistle. The description of the body of Christ is given, our riches in Christ, our victory in Christ, our responsibility in Christ. It's our responsibility to honor him as a body, as the church, the outcalled ones, the ecclesia. It explains who we are, what we are, and what we have in Christ, with Christ, by Christ, through Christ. The whole book is like this. You cannot read the book of Ephesians without running into that almost every other sentence. For example, you're in Ephesians, head with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Ephesians 1, 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Beautiful. Look at verse uh, 3, same book, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 6, in the Beloved. Verse 7, in whom? Verse 10, if you would, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ. And you can go on in verse 12, verse 22, 5, 6, 7, 10, 13, 3, 6, 11, 21. Being in Christ. It's a thought that just overwhelming. Your mind throws a cog when you think about it. In Christ. What does that mean? I am in him, in heavenly places. I'm in him on earth, and he is in me. In that day, John 14, you shall know that I am in my Father, ye in me, and I in you. That is the body of Christ. We're in him, and he's in us. Right now, actually, physically, literally in us right now. God in you. The hope of glory. Amazing, amazing truth. And metaphorically, God says, you are in me, but you're also part of me. The church, the body of Christ. You're an appendage, according to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. An arm, a leg, an eye, an ear. You're part, you're an appendage of that body of Christ, responsible to perform a task that God has given you or has given me. I want you to note the names of the church, if you would. Look, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Pick it up with me right in verse 19, Ephesians 2, 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God. The household of God. God's family, God's household. And your household, whether you have children or not, man, wife, husband, wife, you're a household. And that's what we're part of, that household of God. So beautifully mentioned here. Verse 21, notice. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. A, a temple, a place of worship, a place where God dwells. One more place. Look at chapter 1, verses, let's pick it up in verse 21. In whom all the building, chapter, I'm sorry, two twenty-one. In whom all the building, we're a building of God. We're fitly framed together, the scriptures tell us. All of these terms have to do with the body being one. If you're here today and you're a born-again believer, you're part of that body. Say, well, I don't feel it. It doesn't matter. You're part of the body. I have a hard time believing it. It doesn't matter. You're part of that body. You're responsible to God for what he says about you as part of the body. Every single one of us here. This should strike deep. I hope when you read the book of Ephesians, and I trust you'll do that, it strikes deep into the heart of believers. Born-again people, we're a family, we're a unit. We're, we're supposed to be closer than our actual living family that doesn't know Christ as Savior. We're that close, a compacted unit in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. That's, uh, the believers need to pray together, meet together, function together, support one another. Why? Because that's what God says. That's your responsibility. But I have problems. If you use as your excuse not to meet together your problems, literally, you are the problem. 
Because God requires all of us to function as one in Christ. It's not an option. Well, I can pick or choose, maybe here, but when you get to heaven, you're going to give a few answers for that. Why? Because we're responsible to the Lord for our function. Now, it's so interesting. I want you to notice just a little further, if you could. Paul begins his study with chapter 2 and verse 11. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past, times past, before, this is what you were before. And what were they? They were Gentiles. Verse 13, notice. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were once far off are made near by the blood of Christ. It's interesting because Ephesus was primarily a Gentile city. My understanding it was the third largest city on earth, if not the third, the fourth largest city on earth. Massive, massive place, but it was primarily Gentiles. There was a few Jewish synagogues there, and the church at Ephesus began through a Jewish synagogue. So Paul is writing to the Jews, but also to the Greeks, or the, 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 the Gentiles now, who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's letting them know, listen, you're no longer strangers or sojourners out of the Old Testament. They weren't part of Israel. And Israel began to say, well, we don't want them around us at all. Wait a minute, God said, you're supposed to be a light to the nations. But Israel wasn't, see. Whose fault was it? It was the Jews' fault. But all, also the Gentiles, as the Gentiles rejected God's word and continued to, to go down this slope into vast paganism and wickedness, they became a, a gulf between them. And God said, I'm bringing that gulf together. In times past, but now, but now, notice, but now what? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is that bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles, making them one. Verses 14 and 15, notice. For he is our peace who hath made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, to make of himself one new man so making peace. And verses 14 and 15 are the so then. In times past, this is the way it was, but now, now you're in Christ. So then you have responsibilities. So then you have to do something. Again, it's not an option. It's an absolute responsibility for all of us. Paul is presenting the person of Christ as that bridge. At that bridge, through his shed blood, all who believe on him are the one in Christ. The bridge has been taken down the middle wall of partition. Many scholars believe that this has to do with when you went up onto the Temple Mount, around the temple there were walls, certain walls, and here the Gentiles, they could only come this close, no matter what they were, proselyte Jews, no matter what, they could only come so close to the temple. Then there was the, the, the woman section, and then there was the men that could go in and pray and then the temple itself. That middle wall of partition, it's been taken down. Now you, as Gentiles, can meet together with the Jews in worship in the temple. So Paul lets us know that the beginning of the church, of course, was, uh, is a Jewish church, and then the Gentiles were brought in, and now God is working through Jew and Gentiles. He's the hope 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the hope or literally the assurance of the Jews and Gentiles. Now, Peter, is, Peter was the first one to, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. I won't make you go there, but uh, you can see that in Acts chapter 4, uh, that Peter goes to the Gentiles, literally he, he goes to a place, Cornelius. Remember, God made him do that. God gave him a vision, sheets coming down, what I've called clean. Don't you dare call unclean. So Peter receives a message. He goes to the house of Cornelius. And Cornelius was called a centurion of the Italian band, a, a Gentile seeker of God. God was drawing Cornelius into himself, and as God did that, Peter went and presented the Lord Jesus Christ. And you won't, I won't have you go there, but Peter gives this testimony. The Jew, Jerusalem council heard, the Christian Jerusalem council heard, Peter, we heard you went to Gentiles. Remember, there's still that, in the mind of the uh, Jewish believers, we, we don't have anything to do with Gentiles. They're unclean. But God said, no, I've called them clean, and now Peter has to explain himself. We went, I went into them, I gave them the word of God, and they believed, and the Spirit of God came upon them as it did us in the beginning of what we call uh, the church age. So believing brings salvation both to the Jew and to the Gentile. It's made them one, and that's, that's the outstanding word here found, uh, picking it up, please, in verse 14 of um, Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to notice that. Verse 14. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition. Go to verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. Verse 16 and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit. The one, the one, the one. It's so important to recognize that and to see that. We're one in Christ. It doesn't matter who, who, you, who you are, your background, your heritage, your ethnicity. None of that matters. I'm Polish, the rest of you poor people are other things, but realize that we're all one in Christ. That's gone. Now all that stuff is gone. When I became a born-again believer, old things were passed away and all things became new. I'm now a Christ one. And everything else is insignificant to that. But my heritage, listen, in Christ, your heritage doesn't mean anything. Not a thing. You're now called a Christian, a Christ one. And at first, that was a swear word. It was. Among the world, that was a, they're Christ ones. Remember uh, the, the uh, I, it was either Herod or Pilate, I don't remember which one, but you, in the book of Acts, you're trying to make me a Christian, Paul? It was like a curse word to them. I don't want to be a Christian. It was interesting. But now in Christ, we're one. We are Christians, Christ ones in Christ. So Paul's talking about this oneness, this oneness of the body. You can also see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know, where Paul talks about the Spirit of God 
using the Word of God and the life of individuals who have come to Christ, and they're all part of that one body by the Holy Spirit. The appendages of the body, as we mentioned before. So we are, we are part of that body. And it's interesting, uh, as a functioning body, we see, picking it up right in verses 20 through 22, this is the arteries of the body, the arteries. This is what the body needs for life. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, but the flow of life is the arteries. You know, the blood comes uh, through the heart, pumps from the heart through the arteries that forces the blood into the rest of the body. I am told that an open artery can shoot up to 10 feet of blood, the pressure that's behind it. What's the purpose of it? To feed the rest of the body. This is the arteries of the body, verse 20. And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That's the blood of the, of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the arteries that force that life into the lives of individuals. And every one of us, every single one of us, need that life-flowing blood. Paul describes the church as a, a great building. Notice, a holy temple. He, he describes it as, uh, in verse 20, the foundation. Well, notice in verse 20, and you're built upon the, the foundation with that household of God. The formation of that household of God is in... Um, is, is in verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together. And then the function of that building or that body is in whom you are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That's our function, to live on earth and to honor God through the Spirit of God. This is all so important for us to realize. That's why Ephesians 2 is a necessary read. Listen, the whole Bible is a necessary read, obviously. But Ephesians is where you and I are to focus part of our life on this. Why? Because it describes us, who and what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Note, if you would please, we are built upon the foundation. Pick that up again in verse uh, 20. And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now the apostles and prophets, they're mentioned in chapter 3 and verse 5, notice that which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's talking about New Testament apostles and prophets. Not the Old Testament guys. They, they were part of God's great plan, for sure. But he now references the New Testament apostles and prophets, the, the writers. These are the, these are the men that laid the foundation. How did they do it? Through God, by the Spirit of God, revealing to them, inspiring them, the writings of God, what God wanted them to write. We are built upon that foundation. It's a wonderful foundation. Keep your hand here. We're coming right back. Head with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's talking about the responsibility of the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't overemphasize this enough. You're, once you became born again, you were not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you're to glorify God, God in your body and in your spirit, which what? They're God's. You have a responsibility. Oh, I have a responsibility to my family. I have a responsibility to my boss. I have a respons yeah, you have lots of other responsibilities, but they are secondary to your responsibility in Christ. If you don't 
exercise your responsibility in Christ, then the responsibility, then the, the, the other parts of your family are going to be suffering because of that. Your first job is to honor the Lord. Then God will take care of family and friends and everything else. But our responsibility is to the things of God, first of all. Paul says that, please, in verse 1 Corinthians 3. A lot of people thought Apollos was greater than Paul, and maybe he was. I don't know that as far as personality and, and uh, intellect and abilities. But Paul was God's called man. And Paul said this, uh, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? They're, they're ministers, that's it. By whom you believe even the Lord gave, as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Paul dug, if you would, and put the seed in the ground. Apollos gave water to that seed. Both are necessary. You've got to put the seed in the ground. You've got to water the thing. Both are necessary. But it's God that gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that gives the increase. See, it's all about him. It's not about you. You're just an instrument in the hands of God. Now, verse 8. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own responsibility, his labor. Now, picking up in verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's cultivated field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another man builds on it, but every, let every man take heed how he builds. So the foundation was laid, the Apostle Paul, a writer of the truth of the word of God, the divine words of God right there given by Paul. He was part of that foundation of the apostles and prophets. Oh, then don't we owe them a debt of gratitude? Head back with me, if you would, please, to the book of Ephesians again. Yes, they were godly men. We're thankful they exercised their spiritual gifts and that they gave us the foundation of the word of God in the epistles. But notice, if you would, please, in verse 28, I'm sorry, Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and verse 20, and you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now today we have trans transoms, is that what it is? And lasers and all this stuff. And uh, everyone uses a laser to make sure everything's level and straight. And that's fine. But in biblical days, the cornerstone was the most important part of the building. When you're going to lay out a building in order to make everything level and everything square, perpendicular, everything had to come off that cornerstone. So if the cornerstone was laid, everything fit on the foundation properly. Everything was aligned. Why? Because the cornerstone was there. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The chief cornerstone. So everything coming off that lines up. And if it doesn't line up, what happens is disaster. The whole building is unstable, imperfect. It's tantamount in, uh, we don't have it much here, but in the nation of Israel, if you travel to uh, Israel, and you go and you'll see what's called Roman arches built by the Herods and, and other uh, men that will come after them. Roman arches, giant arches, some of them as big as this room. And the most important piece of a Roman arch is the keystone at the top. It holds the whole thing together. Without the proper keystone, that arch, no matter how big it is, will crumble to the ground. Christ was the keystone. He was the cornerstone. Everything is level. Everything's held up. Everything is square by him. You go outside of the word of God and you cause problems. 
That's what's so terrible about some of these, quote, churches, unquote, that they don't take the word of God literally, they don't rightly divide the word of truth, and they head off in directions, and what do they do? They crumble the church. And poor people who are either too ignorant or, or too lazy to read the word of God follow after them. And you end up with a mess for something that's called the church. That's why it's so important we all follow the writings of the apostles slash prophets, the word of God, every one of us. And we're God's building, God's building. Isn't that wonderful? Look at that in verse 21. In whom all the building, God's building. Without a proper foundation, a building is in huge trouble. In the early 80s, I worked in Burlington, Massachusetts, and it was, it was part of the Apollo projects and all that, and it was just growing. The whole, it was called America's Electrical Highway, Burlington area, uh, 128-95, you know that. Well, anyway, uh, they were building buildings like crazy. I mean, just one day you go by, the next day there's a foundation, and then there's a building. But many, many of those buildings were built so quickly and, and so uh, terribly, most of them had to be built. Uh, no, I, I used an exaggeration. Many, many of them had to be torn down and start all over again. I, I saw it. You, you see cracks all through the building. And after a while, they end up tearing the whole thing down and starting all over. Why? The foundation wasn't right. The former Cornerstone Church, the building on Elmwood Avenue, when we were putting in our new education wing, and, and um, we, uh, they dug down, and they had these giant machines, and as far as they dug, they hit sand. As far as they dug down, they hit sand. And so in order to support the building above and all the classrooms and everything with it, the foundation, they had to put in giant, giant footings so that anything that rested upon it would not sink down in the sand, but would, it would be absorbed in the, the length and width of the thing. Why? The foundation is most important. That's us. If you travel to Israel, and I mention that because I just love the place and hope to go back or have my bones buried there before I die. Well, after I die, I should say. I'd rather not be buried there before. <laughs> but if you travel, then you go north of the city, the Damascus Gate. It's under Palestinian authority, a Damascus Gate, the Arab Gate, north of the city. And you, once you get outside that gate, you turn to the right, and you go down, and if you travel down in what's called Solomon's Mines, amazing, amazing place, you go deep into the heart of the earth where they cut out all these stones for the temple. And we won't go there, but remember the requirement of those stones in the temple. It said they had to be hewn there at the mines and brought up into the temple mount. And there up on the Temple Mount, it said this, neither hammer nor chisel, they laid together perfectly. Now that won't mean anything to you unless you travel underneath the city of Jerusalem and see those stones. I've been there many times. It's one of the most amazing sights in the world. Stones four feet wide, four feet high, some of them 40 feet long. And once they put one stone upon another, you could not slide a diamond between them. The foundation. That's the foundation. We are the scriptural foundation. That's what God expects from us. That's what God expects from us. You say, well, wow, that's a pretty big, pretty big command. Yes, it is. You say, well, how can we do this? I don't even like some of the people I'm sitting in the room with. 
Well, you've got a problem. You need to get it made right with God, if not with some of the people in the room. Think about this, would you? The church is a work in progress, aren't we? I mean, we're being added to. We're growing together. We're a work in progress. If I can use this example, Nancy and I, in this September, we will have been married for 50 years. Two sinners in one house. Well, Nancy's mostly worse than I am, but you get the picture. <laughs> Two sinners in one house. And what does it require? Work. Work. We love one another. That goes without saying. But there's a need for forgiveness. There's a need for selflessness. We, as we function together, there's a need. Okay, now, we're the body of Christ. Over 150 of us. Guess what's going to happen there? There's always little skirmishes. There's always little preferences. There's always people who want their way, you know, just like a spoiled brat child. It's always that way. It's always going to be that way. It's not right. No, it's not right. It's unfortunate. They shouldn't have said that to me. No, they shouldn't have. But you need to forgive them and love them. Get it made right. Don't wear your petty feelings on your shirt sleeves or blouse sleeves or whatever it is. Get it made right with the Lord. Get going. Why? Because we're a body, you see. We're a family. But you know, today's society, you just dump the person. The cancel culture. Just cancel everything. The woke people. There's not a dumber name on the face of the earth, is there? The woke people. The cancel culture. Listen, folks, you better be careful God doesn't cancel you. Be careful of that. That's more important than the whole culture all around us, isn't it? So God wants us to function together as a, as a body. We're, we're harmoniously fit together, aren't we? Notice what he calls us. This is so important. Head with me, please, into um, verse 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together. That fitly framed together is an interesting word. If you put it in today's building uh, codes or building society, it's taking a piece of wood and, and making them match. Now, the problem with wood today is it doesn't always match together. Sometimes it needs to be shaved. Sometimes it needs to be cut. Sometimes it needs to be worked on or sanded for it to fit together perfectly. And that's what God does in the church. You may need a couple slices taken off you to get you to fit right, right? But it's even more than that because... Peter said, we're more than that. We're living stones. Living stones. The word, it's uh, lithos. Lithos. And it's not a brick. It's not, you know, these building made of brick inside and outside there's these bricks. They're all the same shape. They're all the same size. They're virtually, they're almost all the same color. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a stone, a field stone. They're not all the same shape. They're not all the same color. They're not all completely round. There's different sizes, different shapes of stones. And in order to make stones fit together, there's a lot of work there. Do you ever go by some stone wall? The craftsmen that put that together without any mortar, and it stands perfectly. It stands perfectly. Every stone had to be fit together. You know that's true of us? We don't all have the same intellect, we don't have all the same abilities. We don't have all the same uh, attitudes all the time. And God says, I'm fitting you together to function for me. I mean, I'm all right, but some of you guys are odd people. 
not looking at anyone in particular. <laughs> We're odd people. We really are. But see, God has taken that oddity, put us together to function together, and he said even the angels wonder about that. The very angels themselves wonder how we do it. Well, we do it when we love Christ. We do it when we love the church. We do it when we function together. We're the body of Christ. And it's for God's purposes. You know, you come in here, I want to be something. Listen, then you better sit down for a while. Why? Because until you realize you're nothing that God will use for something, that's when you're usable. When you, when you recognize that God has a purpose for me, remember, and I won't turn to it, we're running out of time so quickly, I hate that clock, but God said that he, the Spirit of God, gives us spiritual gifts according to his will, not yours. The spiritual gifts are determined upon God, not you. God, may, God will, might use you in something that you never even conceived of. Why? Because it was God's will, not yours. See, God wants us to function that way. And so that's, again, our responsibility. We're to grow unto a holy temple in the Lord, holy, separated, other than, other than sinful, other than worldly, other than, than the world is like. Well, we're supposed to be different. We see that in uh, verse uh, 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple. We're put together for the habitation of God. Uh, again, head with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Keep your hand here. 1 Corinthians 3. Look, if you would, please, at verses 15 and 16. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 15 and 16. Know ye not that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. But the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You see, you're the temple of God. By the Spirit of God indwelling us. Chapter 6 and verse 19. 619. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of God, uh, temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have of God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore, because of that, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's, the temple of God. Temple of God. So interesting. We're built together for a habitation of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling in each and every one of us, functioning together. One more place, for now. Romans 8, Romans 8 and verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you, now, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. The Spirit of God dwells in you as a believer. And if you're not exercising that, the question is, are you really a believer? I don't know. God knows. In my lifetime as a pastor, and I've seen this over 35 years, I served as an elder prior to becoming a pastor. Over 35 years, I've seen a number of people claim they were Christians. And, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to believe, okay, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah. Then you see them after just a little bit of time. They're gone. They're gone. And as a human being, I question, I wonder if they really were Christians. I wonder if I'll really see those people in heaven. I don't know. I just don't know. We need to recognize people can say anything they want. A guy can come to you and say, I'm a monkey. 
He's not. He's not. But that's what he said. I have to believe you're a monkey because you said you were? No. I don't have to believe you're a Christian because you say you are. I should be able to see that, right? By your fruits, by their fruits, you shall know them. Are they really? Well, God has to determine the end of it. I, I can't. I don't know that at all. But recognize that God has a purpose, and we're built together for what? For the habitation of God. God functions in us and through us as a body. What? So they, unsaved people, can see Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the purpose of it all. One last passage and we're done. One last passage and we're done. Head with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I love this passage of scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to Timothy, an individual, the head of the church at Ephesus, apparently. And as he writes to them, Paul lets Timothy know, listen, you, you're in charge here. You're, you're supposed to be the director of the body, the steerer, the shepherd, if you would, of the body, an elder, episcopos. Um, you're supposed to be the one to lead and feed this church. However, picking up in verse uh, 15, but if I tarry long, I'll be gone for a while. I want to come, but verse 14, but I don't know. But if I tarry long, 1 Timothy 4, uh, 3 and verse 15, but if I tarry long, I'm writing these things that you might know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. See, the whole building, the house of God, the indwelling place, the believers, we're not talking about this building. You're the build, you're the church. The, we're not an organization, we're an organism, you see. When no one's in this building, the church isn't here. You say, well, it's the First Baptist building. No, this is the Cornerstone Church. No, we're the Cornerstone Church. But you know what? If it was us or, or the, the previous group that was here, once you leave this building, this is known as a building. It's not the church. We are the church. It's not an organization, it's an organism. The believers all together. And Paul is telling Timothy, this is how it ought to function. Now why does it function that way? A habitation through the Spirit, that, for what reason? We're the pillar and ground of the truth. We hold up the truth to a lost and dying world. That's what's supposed to happen. As we function together, when you tell your unsaved friends, I have problems at the Cornerstone Church, you are telling them the church is no good. You are telling them the body of Christ doesn't work. You're discrediting the Word of God. But when you live according to the Word of God and you function according to the Word of God, you hold the truth up in their face. You show them, hey, this is Christ. I'm going to close with this very quickly. Nancy and I, on one of our anniversaries, I don't remember which one it was, 50, you know, you get tend to forget in between there. One of our anniversaries, we went to Washington, D.C., just Nancy and I. Uh, someone took care of our kids, I don't know who, thank you if it was one of you. But we went to Washington, D.C., and we were walking around, you know, the, the, the mall, they call it a mall, there's a building every six miles or so apart from each other, and one of the, one of the buildings on the mall is called the Lincoln Memorial. Have you ever been there? Anyone ever been there? You ought to go there and make you an American. Don't think about who's in charge of the place, but think about the building. It's a wonderful building, the Lincoln Memorial. And we were walking around. It was, it, was after, it was getting a little dark, and it was beautiful, the lights on the thing. And I happened to see a side door open down at the bottom of the Lincoln Memorial. And I thought, 
there's a door there, and it's open. So I started walking toward it, because Nancy said, don't go in there, Bill, what's the matter with you? Don't go in there. So I thought, i got to go in there. I have to see what's in there. Well, we went in this area, and there's an area under the Lincoln Memorial, and there are blocks of granite there, 20 feet, 30 feet wide, giant blocks of granite. You know what they're doing? They're holding up the Lincoln Memorial. Giant blocks of granite. No form, no shape, except there is a block and it's just holding them. They're not pretty, they're not carved, they're not finished, nothing. That's you. With all your warts and wrinkles and imperfections, when we meet together as the church, we hold up the word of God. We, that's us. That's what Ephesians is all about. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. It's about you and I functioning in Christ and recognizing who he is and his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the revealed truth of the word of God. Thank you, Father, for, for giving us such a blessed hope in Christ Jesus. Father, we are in Christ and he is in us. We are appendages of his body, each and every one of us. We all have a responsibility to function for him to be part of, of a, a growing and an a imperfect uh, church body here in uh, Warwick, Rhode Island. Father, give us your, your wisdom and your grace. Father, give us uh, the, the desire, the need to read the Bible, the need to be together, the need to pray together, the need to function together, to be a part of this body. Help us not to sit back and think of ourselves as some petty king or queen that doesn't need to get involved. Someone who thinks of themselves more highly than they ought to think. Lord, help us to think soberly. Help us to think humbly. And help us to think biblically concerning our responsibility. Father, thank you for the gift of salvation. One new man, one new woman in Christ Jesus. We pray, Father, you just give us your grace and your wisdom to function for you. Help us to forgive and to love one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.